Good morning, church. Good to be with you on this Daylight Savings Day. You know, we got several challenges here with Daylight Savings Day. We got uh, spring break starting. We got the virus out there. So thank you for being here anyway. So we are in uh, eighth, the eighth day of our 40 days of prayer challenge. And uh, if you were not here last week, did not know about that, or not been here the last couple of weeks, uh, we're in 40 days of prayer challenge, seeking the Lord. And you can go to our website and see various ways, suggestions about fasting, whether or not that involves food, electronics, people, some, something else, media. And um, let this be a time of especially pressing in the Lord. We've got these prayer bands. Uh, Carol Ham, our prayer pastor, had a good idea. The prayer band says, the Lord is near to all who call on Him. And if you're out in the community, have occasion to pray with somebody. You know, a great question to ask somebody. Is there something I pray for you about? But if you have occasion to pray, you might even give them the prayer band to remind them to, that God is near to those who call upon Him. Um, also, uh, we've got three prayer journal books there. We had them in the last 40 days in the fall. We've got them this time. And what I've asked folks to do is to, to put down three God-sized prayer requests. Some of you did that last time. You're still praying for the same ones. Maybe you got new ones. Uh, a young man walked in today and said, I've already had in five days the answer to prayer for one of mine. So, yay, God. And uh, they're in the, uh, by the sound booth. Uh, Joe, if you would just stick your hand up. You're just right by him. And uh, they're there. Uh, Jack Deere is coming in 40 days. No, he's not. I don't know when he's coming, but he's coming March 29th. It's not 40 days. We're in 40 days of prayer. Uh, one of the books that have influenced me the most, uh, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit by Jack Deere, it's going to be a rich time. I know God's going to use it. Join us for that. That would be great. Okay. So in the 7th and 8th centuries, there were Irish monks that had some remarkable things. One writer tells this story. In the 7th and 8th centuries, Christianity virtually died in Europe. The collapse of the Roman Empire also became the collapse of organized Christianity. The only place in the Western world where Christianity was of any influence was in Ireland, most specifically as it was preached by the Irish monks. The Irish monks did some interesting things to express their extreme faith. Many of them would get into little boats and put out into the sea, trusting that Whatever the current led them, wherever the current led them, that was where God wanted them to go. Many of them, of course, perished. It was, the author writes, in my thinking, a dumb way to express your faith. But those who landed on the shores of the European continent preached the gospel. You can find great monasteries in Europe today that were founded by Irish monks in that period of time. The monastery where St. Francis of Assisi experienced his conversion was founded by an Irish monk. One of the great Irish monks was a man now known as St. Brendan. Before he embarked upon the seas, he is said to have prayed this prayer. Shall I abandon, O king of mysteries, the soft comforts of home? Shall I turn my back on my native land and my face toward the sea? Shall I put myself wholly at the mercy of God without silver, without a horse, without fame and honor? Shall I throw myself wholly upon the king of kings without a sword and shield, without food and drink, without a bed to lie on? Shall I say farewell to my beautiful land, placing myself under Christ's yoke? Shall I pour out my heart to Him, confessing my manifold sins and begging forgiveness, tears streaming down my face? Shall I leave the prince of my knees on the sandy beach, a record of my final prayer in my native land? 
Shall I then suffer every kind of wound that the seas inflict? Shall I take my tiny boat across the wide, sparkling ocean? O King of the glorified heaven, shall I go of my own choice upon the sea? O Christ, will you help me on the wild waves? Quite a prayer. And I'm not sure those monks heard right from God. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But I love their bold faith and understanding that in the adventures and uncertainties and even the fears of life, they can trust a sovereign God. And in the face of the insecurities, the adversities, the difficulties of our lives, God has called us to trust Him with all our hearts, to trust Him on the wild waves of our, our lives. One of the people in the Bible who best exemplifies this is Stephen. We spent two weeks on Stephen, come to the third and final week today. One of the remarkable men in the New Testament for the way he lived and the way he died. And here's the background for our passage today. Stephen has been arrested. It's the early church. The religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, mostly the Sadducees, are trying to stamp out this incipient faith of the gospel. And he's now been arrested. And here's the charge against him in 613. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that is the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So Stephen is accused of speaking against the two most sacred things for the Jews, the temple and the law. That was a wimpy sneeze. <laughs> so, we come to our passage today, and in verse 1, we read, And the high priest said, that is, in response to these charges, and the high priest said, Are these things so? And in response, Stephen gives an overview of the entire Old Testament in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, verses 2 through 53. His overview has a fourfold focus shown in the slide. First, he talks about what God did through Abraham, the patriarch and the father of the faith. Secondly, verse 9 through 16, what he did through Joseph, his grandson, great-grandson. Then through Moses, then in the temple itself. So this long message. Now, keep in mind those first three figures, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, Moses spent much time outside the land of Israel. Now, especially Joseph, he spent just about his entire life in Egypt. Moses spent 80 of his 120 years in Egypt and never in the land. Uh, Abraham spent some time out. And so Joseph, I mean, Stephen is, is implying not only is God not confined to a physical building like the temple, he's not even confined to the whole land of Israel. I mean, he's at work. He's bigger than the whole land of Israel. He's certainly bigger than the temple, as important as that was. And then in verse 48, he specifically addresses the temple, which was the dwelling place of God during the Old Testament period. Verse 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what, kind of, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? He's the sovereign God. He is not confined to a temple or even the entire land of Israel. That's his first basic point. 
God's not confined to a building. Second major point is that the people of Israel have continually rejected God's prophets in the Old Testament, and that is what you religious leaders are doing today. He's talking to the Sanhedrin. That's the Supreme Court, the 70 august religious leaders of the Jews who were behind the execution of Jesus along with the Romans. And they can execute him, and he says, um, you know, you, you are part of this train of opposing God's people. The third major point is that you, you religious leaders, you complain about, uh, you say that I'm talking, uh, talking against the law. Well, you hear the law, but you do not obey it. And we see his final thoughts to them in verse 51 and following, where he says to the Sanhedrin, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they kill those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. I mean, he's so bold, so unintimidated, so fearless with them. And so the three big points of his sermon. God's not confined to the temple. God's people have always, been, have always persecuted God's prophets. And thirdly, you are hearers but not doers of the Word of God. Now, that's all by way of background. We're not going to walk through the whole chapter 7. But for about 10 verses now, we're going to pick it up. So if you'd stand with me. Let me read it. We're going to start at 754. Go through the end of the chapter, through 8-4. Remember, the first and chapter divisions were added in the 1500s, Middle Ages, not part of the inspired text. This passage goes through 8-4. All right, 754. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling down to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. God's holy word. Please be seated. Did you note the strong contrast about the Holy Spirit between the religious leaders and Stephen? Back in verse 51... Stephen says to the religious leaders, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Wow. 
Then in verse 55, the Bible says of Stephen that he is full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, what a contrast. They are always resisting the Spirit. Stephen is full of the Spirit. Last week, we saw in the life of Stephen that the key that explains his remarkable life and death, his faith, his grace, his, his, the power of God upon him, the key is the Holy Spirit. There were five descriptive phrases in the two passages, Acts 6 and 7. Four of the five state explicitly that he was full of the Spirit. The fifth one doesn't say he's full of the Spirit, but says he's full of power. And we know from Acts 1-8, you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So God is underscoring to you and to me the absolute essential nature that we are full of the Spirit. That means empty of self, full of the Spirit. If you've got sin in your life, you're not empty of self, and you're not going to be full of the Spirit. It's surrendered to the Spirit, surrendered to Christ, dependent upon God. So the same Spirit that was in Philip, uh, that was in Stephen, is in you and me. And, and this is how we live the Christian life, dependent, surrendered, yielded. It is not okay for us to be the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, replacing the temple in the Old Testament. You and I, the dwelling place of Almighty, Sovereign, Holy God, it is not okay for us to be the dwelling place of God and ignore the Holy Spirit in our lives. Not even think about Him, much less depend upon Him. That is not okay. But God has called us to depend upon the power of the Spirit because that's where the power is. And all through the book of Acts, we see this. Stephen was full of the Spirit. And as we are full of the Spirit, God will bring the fruit of the Spirit into our lives. We see the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We don't get these things by chasing after them, including joy and love. We get them by chasing after God, by surrendering to God, letting the Spirit fill us. God, God brings them. So Stephen, full of the Spirit. Now, in addition to being full of the Spirit, we see in our passage today that he was also full of the Word of God. First of all, from memory, he overviews the entire Old Testament because he knew the Bible so well. And, and twice in that sermon, if we opened up Acts 7 and went through it, we'd see that it, twice he quotes from memory two longish passages. I mean, he didn't have these bunches of scrolls in front of him. Um, he's quoting from memory. He loved the Word. He knew the Word. He obeyed the Word. He treasured the Word. Now, you always find people who, who emphasize either the Word or the Spirit but give unequal emphasis. There are many people who really emphasize the Word of God, but they don't uh, emphasize at all, biblically, the Spirit. And there are others who may give great emphasis to the Spirit but not to the Word. But God wants us to be full of the Spirit and full of the Word. Both of them, that one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to Jack Deere being in our church and in our city, I've invited other pastors around because of his wide ministry, is because he remarkably exemplifies being full of the Word and full of the Spirit. And so we get a great privilege. As God is calling us to prayer during the book of Acts, as he's had the, now the second 40 days of prayer, as uh, we've seen a lot on the Holy Spirit. Um, it's just fitting that God is raised up also this time with Jack Deere in late March. So, 
the biblical Christian, like Stephen, like Paul, like Jesus, full of the Spirit and full of the Word of God. Now, let's be clear. When we say, when we talk about being full of the Word of God, I am not talking about knowing the Word of God in your brains. I'm talking about doing the Word of God, knowing and doing the Word of God. You know, people who know the Word of God but don't do it, that's not just limited to the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the first century. It, our churches are full of people who are, have heads full of, not, of the Word of God but do not obey it. And we've got to have this, this vigorous, robust mindset every time we're exposed to the Bible that we are doers. We're doers. We obey it. Every time on Sunday mornings that we open up God's Word together, I hope you have a sense, God, what are you saying to me? What do I, what, what do, I do? It's like you're on a tennis court. The tennis ball has been hitting. The ball is in your court. And what, what are you going to do about it? And every time you open up the Word of God uh, in your private daily devotionals, the same perspective. Lord, what are you calling me to do? Not, not hearers, doers of the Word of God. Stephen modeled that, and that's what God has in our life. Okay, Stephen knew the Bible. He, he loved the Bible. He read the Bible. He obeyed the Bible. He treasured the Bible. And if we hope to have the same kind of faith-filled life in the midst of uncertainty and adversity, um, then we too will love God's Word. Now let me just say to you, if you only open up God's Word on Sunday mornings, you don't love God's Word. If you only open up God's Word two or three times a week, you don't really love God's Word. Um, if you recognize that this book is as vital to your spiritual life as oxygen is to fire, then every day you're going to open up God's Word and meet with God and hear from God. And ask the Spirit of God to speak to you. And that is absolutely essential. If you feel like you're bored in the spiritual life, feel like, man, it's not going so well, that might be a reason why. Let me urge you, let me beg you as your pastor, live in this book and obey it every day. All right, in verse 55, we read of Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, in the Jewish mindset, the right hand of God was the place of authority in the universe. It's a place only for God. And they said, I see Jesus there, the man they murdered. And so, they don't like that. They shut their ears and rush him and take him out of the city to stone him to death. Now, last week I mentioned what a stoning to death would look like in the Old Testament era or in the early New Testament, it would be something like this. They would take the person and, and, and usually find a, a cliff and, and toss him off. I'm not talking about a 100-foot cliff, just 10 or 12 feet, just some little drop-off. And they would throw him down on the rocks, and then they would heft these large stones and toss them upon him, and they would crush him. It was a cruel death. Stephen is experiencing that, and it has a couple more sentences in him. Verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, we know that Saul, in Acts 9, will become, uh, will, will, God will save him, and a few chapters later, God will rename him to fit his new life, Paul, and he will become 
The man who was the leading opponent of the gospel will become the leading proponent of the gospel. The man who was the leading antagonist of the gospel will become the leading ambassador of the gospel. And uh, God will radically change his life. But right now, he hates Jesus. And he considers these early Christians a threat to the Jewish way of life. And so, he hates it. And he's standing there cheering them on as they stone Stephen to death. We later, in 1 Timothy 1, read about Paul. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He said, God's grace overflowed to me. He said, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Why did God raise up Paul like he did? Because forever after, God wants you to make it crystal clear, nobody is beyond his grace. If he could take Paul, who hated Jesus, who was the main persecutor of Jesus, and make him not only a believer, but the leader of the early church, whom God used more than anybody in history since the gospel. If, if God did that for Paul, is anybody beyond God's grace? Is anybody, does anybody have such sin that the blood of Jesus can't forgive them? No, you're right, pumpkin. Uh, God's grace is bigger than your sin. Never, ever forget it. Paul had been ambushed by the grace of God, and he never recovered. May it be, church, that you and I, who have been ambushed by the grace of God, would never recover from it, but that we would be indelibly, irrevocably in love with Jesus the rest of our days and not casual, lukewarm, comfortable Christians living for ourselves in this world. May we be all in for the Savior. Stephen's final two statements resonate with what Jesus prayed from the cross because Stephen was so Christ-like in so many ways. When Jesus was on the cross, he prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then we see in verse 56 that Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You know, echoing what Jesus prayed, except Jesus prayed to the Father. Stephen's praying to Jesus because Jesus is God just like the Father is God. And then Jesus prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen prays something similar, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Pick-hearted, grace-filled, Christ-like, because he was full of the Holy Spirit. And when you and I are full of the Spirit, dependent upon the Spirit, surrendered to the Spirit, God will bring the fruit of the Spirit in our lives more and more. Okay, chapter 8, verse 1, we read that and Saul approved of his execution, cheering them on. Verse 1, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Apparently the apostles felt called to stay there in Jerusalem where the church was based. Okay, back in Acts 1, 8. We read, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
and not until Acts 8 and 1, the opposite of that, do they really spread out. For seven chapters, they have focused on Jerusalem more, but the persecution scatters them. And God uses persecution to spread the gospel. He always has. In fact, in the early centuries, Tertullian, a church leader, said it most memorably when he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That is, when blood is spilled, the church expands. It always is. The church is more alive and vital and healthy and alive whenever there is intense persecution, which is a little bit sobering for us because though there is some persecution in our society, it is more subtle than intense like in many parts of the world where there is imprisonment, where there is torture, where there is death. More martyrs today than ever. Persecution has never stopped since the New Testament, and it will continue to increase during the book of Acts. So God uses persecution to spread the church. One of the best examples in modern-day history came in China in 1949. This is what happened in 1949 in China. It's a big, uh, long struggle between the nationalists, Chiang Kai-shek and the communists under Chairman Mao. And in 1949, the communists defeated the nationalists and took over the government. At that point, uh, they expelled 637 missionaries out of the country. And many of the Chinese pastors and leaders were imprisoned or killed or tortured. Now, the missionaries had, had begun in the interior of China with Hudson Taylor in the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s, and they were 637 going strong by this time, and the, and the gospel was spreading in China. But in 1949, the communists take over, all the missionaries are kicked out of the country, and the Chinese leaders and pastors are jailed or tortured. If you and I would have been alive then, we perhaps would have been thinking, oh no, man, this is a disaster for the church in China. But how wrong we would have been because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And in 1949, the church went underground and had to be alive and virile and, and, and and strong and obedient in the face and the teeth of the persecution. It was not until 1989, a year that many of us remember, saw the fall of communism in Russia in many ways, and we saw the lightning in, in China. And for the first time in 40 years, a generation, we could get some idea how the church was doing in China without the missionaries and with all that persecution. And we found out that the church had grown. Now, how much did the church grow during that time? Did it grow 10%? 20%, 50%, 100%, no, no, no. It grew 30 times. That's 3,000%. Or maybe it was 40 times. We don't know the, the exact. The biggest revival in history took place in the intense persecution of China between 1949 and 1989. And the church just blossomed because God uses persecution, just like in the book of Acts, just like in China today, just like around the world, to spread the gospel. We don't want... Um, that kind of intense persecution in our land, or at least we don't need to pray for it. But if it comes, God will use it in our lives, and we're not afraid of it. And we're not afraid of it around the world. Now, the last two or three years, you might know, China is getting more and more uh, hostile toward the gospel. Melody, is that you back there? It's, it's a little bit dark. Melody's right there. Stand up, Melody. Melody Chen, she was 10 years in China, running a fabulous orphan ministry there for the gospel. She had to come back because... Uh, she, her husband, Chen, Chen's mother is, is sitting beside her there. 
uh, because the stuff was getting so hostile in China. China, by the way, is number 18 on the uh, worst persecuted countries. Church, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And you and I, that is a sobering thing because we do not live in a place of that kind of intense persecution. And so the default for most of the church in America, is it 80%, is it 90%, is lukewarm Christianity. No wonder we're having so little impact. Church, it must not be lukewarm Christianity for followers of the gospel of Christ for whom Jesus died on a cross. It must not be. He is worthy of our full surrender and obedience. What are the big takeaways in our passage? One, we again see the centrality of the Spirit. Full of the Spirit, empty of self, full of the Spirit, surrendered to God, dependent upon the Spirit moment by moment. Big takeaway. If you rarely think about the Spirit... That may be your takeaway from, the, from God this morning. Oh, God, I have to depend upon the Spirit in me. Second takeaway, be full of the Word of God. Be full of the Spirit and the Word. Meet with God every day in His book because you need to hear from God. Why would you think you could go out into a battle without your sword? Some of you ought to decide today, okay, Tomorrow morning, you're going to find me with, God, with the Word of God, open Bible, pressing in, pressing in, and the day after and the day after for the rest of your life. Third takeaway, God uses persecution to strengthen the church. You have heard me say recently, there are 245 million Christians around the world living in highly persecuted areas. I mean, we're talking about Somalia and Yemen and Iran and North Korea. North Korea is the worst. Uh, India is on the top 10 list now, has moved up. A lot of missionaries are being kicked out. China's up to number 18. 245 million Christians, their lives are in danger. World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor, was imprisoned by the Nazis for persecution because of his stand for Christ in opposition toward the Nazis and Hitler. He would be sent to a prison camp, and a few days before the Allies liberated the prison camp at Flossburg, by direct order of Heinrich Kemmler, Bonhoeffer was executed a few days before. Some years before that ever came to pass, he wrote these words, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That is, whenever God calls us to himself, he bids us to die to self, live for Christ alone. That was God's call on you when you came to Christ. And it is our privilege. They live for Christ alone. Little did Bonhoeffer know that one day he would be literally killed for the gospel. It has been said that it is easier to die the death of a martyr than to live the life of a saint. And we're seeing that too often in the church in the United States today. But we may never, here at Woods Edge, we may never be called to die the death of a martyr, but may it be that we live the life of a saint that is fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. And why? For one reason. Because Jesus Christ died on a bloody cross so we could enjoy eternity and have forgiveness and life. May God give us grace to be fully surrendered for Him. Would you stand and pray?
could I ask you to close your eyes and take a few moments of silent prayer and just ask the Lord, Lord, what are you saying to me today? Jeff had a lot to say, but Lord, what are you saying to me? And just listen. Lord, bless these, your people. Lord, we want to please you. We want to live for you. We don't want to be lukewarm. We don't want to be comfortable, casual Christians. But, oh, God, may we be white hot on fire for the gospel, even in this, in this land. And would you please be with our brothers and sisters whose lives are in jeopardy around the world, including many of the countries that we're very involved with. Be with them. Friend, if you're in the room, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, breathe a prayer right now and just say, Jesus, come and save me. He will. He will. That's why He came. He will. Bless you, Lord.